Who do God's blessings come to? Do you remember the answer from last Sunday for those of you here? The barren, the broken, the desolate, the weak. How do they come? Not by works of the flesh, but according to the promise of God. And how do you know if you have received God's blessing? That even in the midst of barrenness or desolation or weakness, trial and tribulation, you can rejoice because you're believing in the promises of God. That was last week's message in a nutshell. And typically I don't try and attach the two messages. I like them to stand alone. But in this case, they are so attached that I wanted to remind you of what we went over last week. In Galatians chapter 4, at the end of the chapter, Paul gave a story, an illustration of two women, a slave woman and a free woman, and he says that God's blessings come, came in Genesis to the free woman. And they came not because of the work that she did, but because of the faith that they had in his promise. And so rejoice, O barren women. Rejoice, O desolate one. Because it is all of God. It has been and will be all of God. And if you want to be a child of the promised one, if you want to be a recipient of God's blessing... You want to be an Isaac and not an Ishmael? You want to be a free person and not a slave? Then rejoice in God doing everything for you and receive it by faith. And then you too will be a child like Isaac. A child that receives God's blessing. That was last week. And so if you look and open your Bibles with me in Galatians chapter 4, it ends by explaining in verse 31, So brothers, that's who we are. We are children of the slave. Not of the slave, but of the free woman. We are not children of the slave. We are not the sort of people that try and earn God's favor by putting matters into our own hands. We are women and children of the free. And he doesn't stop there. If you want to think about it, it's as if when I preach and give sermons, I give Bible sections where I explain the Bible, and then I apply the Bible after it, and that's exactly what he's doing here. He is giving a theological, expositional teaching of the Old Testament and telling you that there's a pattern throughout the Bible that we see in the way that salvation comes and blessing comes, and it comes through people trusting in God's promise. So be a child of, be a recipient of the blessing just by faith in the promise, not by your works. That was the exposition. But the the letter keeps going, the writing keeps continuing, and so what we're going to pick up is right where we left off. So then, if that's true, you are children of the free woman. If you're free, then what are the implications? What are the applications for us? So today's message is very application-heavy in terms of its content. And I'm going to read the passage first. It's chapter 5 on page 974 of the Black Bibles. I'm going to read all the way down to verse 15, and this is the section we'll consider. And all of it, I think, is unpacking what he just said in verse 31. 
the conclusion of that illustration between Hagar and Sarah. So follow along as I read. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, or even literally, behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly await for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Have confidence in the Lord. You will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed, and I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out, that you are not consumed by one another. I'd like to summarize this passage into three paradoxical truths, statements about freedom that I think will help guide our time. The first one is going to come right from the first half of verse 1 of chapter 5. The gospel is free for us, but it was costly for Christ. That's statement number one from verse 1 of chapter 5. Statement number two is going to be the longer section of this message, and it's going to be the second half of verse 1 all the way to verse 12. And that statement will read like this. The gospel is a victory that Christ has won, but we must fight not to lose this freedom. And that's the big application of this section. I said this is an application-heavy section, and if I want to sum up the application for us at Embassy Church, is that because Christ has won a victory of freedom for us, We then must fight not to lose that freedom, protect it. And finally, in the last three verses, verses 13 through 15, I'd like us to look at the idea that the gospel has freed us from evil, but paradoxically, it has enslaved us then to love. And this is what we see all through scripture about Christian freedom think paradoxes. It doesn't really match with our understanding of freedom in the world. We think freedom is, let me just do whatever I want, whenever I want, however I want, don't tell me anything. As we go through this passage, I think we'll see a much different picture of freedom. Let's start with our first paradoxical statement. There in verse 1, first half of the verse, so if we are not children of the slave, but we are children of the free woman, first thing he wants us to consider is that for freedom... Christ has set us free. So the gospel is free for us, but it was costly 
for Christ. In a very literal wooden translation, we would translate this, for freedom Christ freed you. And the reason we would do that is because the two words are almost identical. The noun and the verb are the same word in their very root. And so it's freedom is the means and freedom is the ends. Meaning Christ, he is our liberator, he is our freer, our liberator. And then the, the end, the end goal, so he freed us so that we could be free. And that's what this passage is saying, that the gospel is all about freedom. It's one of the ways you could say, so why did Jesus die on a cross? Why did he come to the earth? And one answer, there's many answers, but one is freedom. And I think hopefully one of the quick questions we should be asking ourselves is freedom from what? Christ set us free from from what? All kinds of things. In Hebrews chapter 2, we've already sung and celebrated the truth that because of Christ's death on the cross, we are fear free from the fear of death. I'm no longer a slave to fear. If Christ conquers death, then you no longer need to be a slave to the fear of death. Romans 8.1, our assurance of pardon today. There is therefore now no condemnation. You are now free from all condemnation from God. All of God's wrath, anger towards sin and sinners. You're free. Pardoned. Forgiven. Don't have to pay it. Don't have to bear it. Don't have to carry it. We've seen in Galatians chapter 3 that we are free from the curse of the law because Christ became the curse for us. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. In Romans chapter 5, we see that we're free from the curse of Adam, the curse that the whole world has been subjected to. In Romans chapter 8, that the gospel frees us, the world, and all of mankind if we would put ourselves under this freedom. We're free from spiritual death in Ephesians chapter 2, that you and I were born dead in our sins, dead spiritually. You know the kind of slavery death is? What, what are you going to do if you're dead? You're going to get yourself back up? You're going to do something about it? That's kind of what it means to be dead, that you can't do anything about it because you're stuck in the grave. You're Lazarus. You're dead in the grave and you can't do anything until God speaks and says, come forth, Lazarus. Christ frees people from spiritual death. Romans chapter 6 says that Christ frees us from the slavery and the power of sin. That's what we read in John chapter 8 when Chad came up here. All who sin are slaves to sin. Have you sinned? You want to know why? Not because you made a mistake. Not because that was outside of your normal character. You sin because that's who you are. You're a sinner. That was very naturally what you do because you're enslaved, all of us enslaved to sin. But thanks be to God, Romans 6 says, that the power of sin has been broken because of Christ's death for us. You're freed from inheritance, from, from the inheritance you would receive as a slave, and instead, as a son, you now get to receive adoption. And all the inheritance that's included being adopted as a child of God. You're freed from the inheritance you would have received to be a slave. Do you see the list is long? 
For freedom, Christ has set you free. Christ is the means and freedom is the end. The gospel is free for us because Christ paid it all. It did not cost nothing. Oh, the gospel cost something. It just didn't cost you and me anything. We were set free because Christ took on this slavery that you and I were in. We get life because of Christ's death. This is the gospel. It's a paradox. As we celebrate freedom this morning, as we preach freedom, as we rally ourselves around the idea that let, let's as a church be unified around this truth that Christ has set us free, let us not forget that that was because of a deep, deep cost on behalf of God to send his one and only son on our behalf. Therefore, we now as believers should look at this word in chapter 1 and notice that it says, has set free. This is past tense. Objectively, now, already, done, finished, no more payment to do, no more freeing that needs to be done. Objectively, you are free. But as I say that, how many of us are thinking, I don't feel it? Are you sure? Subjectively, how many of us are living as if we're still under the power of sin and not set free from it? Martin Lloyd-Jones, in a sermon on Romans chapter 6, uses, I think, a helpful illustration for us. He says, imagine that you were a slave in the southern United States before the Emancipation Proclamation comes. If you know anything about this, you'll know that if you're a slave during the Civil War era, you have no rights. You can't vote. Somebody tells you what to do and they're a white man, you listen and you better obey or you will be punished, maybe even killed. Therefore, when you're in town, someone says do this or that, you're afraid. You're afraid that I better listen and I better do it every way and aspect that I'm being asked to do this or otherwise this could go bad for me. Let's fast forward. Let's say now it's 10 years later. The Emancipation Proclamation is over. You're now free. But you go back into town and even though you have rights, and even though you have freedoms, and even though you know objectively that you're a free man and you have been set free, a white man tells you to do something. You hear his voice, you see his face, and you cower. It's still there. It's ingrained in you. And so Martin Lloyd-Jones says, this is the condition of every Christian on this side of heaven. Objectively, we know. We have rights, freedoms. We have rights to the throne. We have rights to the Father. We have rights as children of God. We can approach him boldly, but we're, we cower, we fear. We listen to the voice of the quote-unquote white man. Satan, the devil, the tempter. So you know in your head you're free, but your heart is still prone to give in to this slavery. You don't have to listen to that voice anymore. You can stand up for what's true and right. There is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. But even this week, how many of us have let the opinions of others, the condemnation of others, rule over us? How many of us have let our successes or failures lead us to pride for our success or despair for our failure? You're free. Don't bear that burden anymore. You're free, but you're not believing it, not deep down in your heart. You know that Christ has set you 
free from the power of sin, but yet lust, greed, covetousness still dominate your heart. The reason why this is point number one is because one of our biggest problems is we don't even believe that for freedom Christ has set us free. When we sin, every time we sin, we are functionally living out our slavery from our past rather than living now in the present of our freedom. So friend, brother, sister, do not be mastered by sin or Satan. You hear that voice. Don't cower in fear. Preach the gospel. Sing those familiar lines. And when I feel those temptation to despair, upward I look and I see him there, the one who made an end to all my sin. Remind yourself, Christ has freed you for freedom's sake. So be free. That's point number one. Nothing else matters in the rest of this message if you don't get this first point. For freedom, Christ has set you free. It is the basis of all of Christianity. It is the basis of our belief as a church. It's the basis of the rest of this sermon. Let's move on to point number two, though. There's a lot more text for us to get through. Starting in verse one, we see that the gospel is a victory that Christ has won, but we must fight not to lose this freedom. We must protect this freedom. And so right after we get this command or this statement, for freedom Christ has set us free, we get a command. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. It really reminds me of the story of Exodus. You'll remember that the Israelites were in the Exodus book of the Bible. They were in slavery to Egypt. It was harsh. It was terrible. They prayed. God heard their prayer. He was merciful. He delivered them. He saved them. Through the parting of the Red Sea, Moses led them through, and then they celebrate, and they're so excited that they're now free people on the other side. And how long did it take until they're in the wilderness, and a little trial comes in, and they start saying, man, I wish we could go back to Egypt. That's the picture here. Stand firm. Be diligent. No matter how difficult things are going in your life to feel like, I don't know if this freedom in Christ thing is so good. Fight to continue to press on and believe that this freedom thing in Jesus Christ is worth it. And stand firm here is a military word. It means to stay alert, to be strong, to resist an attack to stick together with your soldiers. Therefore, I conclude this church service is like the captain of the army, Jesus, not me. I'm just giving the orders from Jesus. And he's telling you, soldiers, stand firm. I have already won the battle. It's over. It's done. It's finished. So what I want you to do is stay your post, your post here with me. Trusting that I have won the victory. Don't go running out and thinking, okay, let's go fight the battle. The battle's won. Your battle is to stay with Christ. Stay in him, around him, be near him, remember him. Persevere in fighting the good fight of faith. That's our fight. 
Not the battle to go win against Satan. Not the battle to win against sin. Nope, that battle's done. So has Christ won that battle or has he not? And if he has, then let us fight and stand firm. Let us remember that we will never lose our salvation, but we can lose the joy and experience of our freedom. And this is what's going to be talked about in these next few verses. Look at verses 2 through 6. Look, behold, I, Paul, say to you, if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. What does this mean? If you start leaving the battlefield all on your own and say, I'm going to go fight for Jesus, and I'm going to go win against Satan, sin, and death, you will lose. You won't win, and Christ and his victory will have no advantage, no profit, no benefit to you. So don't do that. Stay with Christ. Stay behind him. Stay under him, in him. Believe in him. That's the idea. As John Calvin said, whoever wants just half of Christ, you lose the whole thing. You want just a little bit of Jesus, a little bit of his victory, then you lose the whole thing. It's either all or nothing. So don't go and try and fight the fight and leave. Receive the battle that has been won on your behalf and fight to stay with him. Verses 3 and 4, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. And that's his point. You're going to lose. If you want to try and say, okay, I'm going to just, just in one area, I'm going to try and win this battle by doing circumcision. By being faithful and obedient with that command in the Old Testament. It says that's leaving Christ. And if you do that, you're, you're, you're going to be severed from Christ's head. You will no longer be a part of the body. And so this is what he explains in verse 4. You're severed from Christ. If you would try to be justified by your circumcision, you will then have fallen away from grace. And so this is a warning. This section of scripture here is a warning. Do not fall away from grace. Fight. Hold on. Persevere. It's a warning so that God would never let his children to do this. And so then some people think, well, could his children do this? And the answer is no. God's children don't lose their salvation. God's children hear these warnings and then they receive them and then they obey them. That's what they do because they hear his voice and they know that that would be crazy. In Hebrews chapter 6, I think it was about a year or so ago, maybe two years, we went through one of the most severe warnings in Scripture. And it talks about those who could fall away from the faith, and if they do, that they'll never be able to be brought back to repentance. And we asked in that service, can somebody then lose their salvation? And if you want the notes or the sermon link for that, you can go over this whole large topic, but I want to sum it all up with the conclusion of that sermon from a quote I gave from Charles Spurgeon. And so if you heard this message, then this would be familiar to you. Spurgeon says, But some say, if they can't actually fall away, then what is the use of putting the if? Now let me pause right here. This is exactly what we see in this passage. It's an if. Look back down at, at verses 2 through 6. Notice he says, if you accept circumcision in verse 2. There's a conditional statement. He's, he's giving a warning. Now, if you do this, if you Galatians accept circumcision as your justification before God, the, the means to receive blessing, if you do that, then you'll be severed from Christ. 
it will be no advantage to you. You will be completely lost in the faith. Don't even try it. It's a warning. So if that is being stated that way, then does that mean it's a possibility? And the answer is no. That's what I've been arguing for the last two plus years, that we've looked at these warnings. So Spurgeon says, so then what's the point? Is it like trying to frighten little children with a boogie monster or a ghost that doesn't really have existence? Oh, my learned friend, who are you to reply against God in this way? If God has put these warnings in Scripture, he has put it in for a wise reason and for excellent purposes. Let me show you. First, O oh Christian, it is put in the Bible to keep you from falling away. God preserves his children from falling away, but he keeps them by the use of means. And one of these means is the terror of the law by showing them what would happen if they did try to fall away. There is a deep precipice. And the best way to keep away from the precipice is to tell someone what would happen if they fell down. They would be dashed to pieces. In some old castles, there is a deep cellar where there is a vast amount of fixed air and gas, which would kill anybody who went down in the cellar. So what does the tour guide say at these castles? If you go down there, you will never come up alive. So who hears that and says, oh, I think I'm going to go down? The very fact of the tour guide telling you of what the consequences would be for going down keeps you away from the cellar. Or... Our friend puts it, our friend puts away a cup of arsenic. He does not want you to drink it. And he says to you, friend, if you drink this poison, it will kill you. Do you suppose for a moment that you would grab the drink and drink it? No, he tells you about the consequences so that you will be sure you will never do it. And so God says, my child, if you fall away from grace, then you will be dashed to pieces. What does a child do when he hears the father? He says, Father, keep me, hold me, make me safe. It leads the believer to greater dependence upon God, to a holy fear and caution, because he knows that if he were to fall away, he would never be renewed and stand far away from that great, great danger, knowing that if he were to fall, he could not be saved. Do you see what we are to do? You're to receive this warning and continue believing by faith that God not only wins a battle for you, but he keeps you. He holds you. And this is, in fact, the very thing he teaches in this passage. One of the reasons why you should not think that he's thinking, oh, some people can lose their salvation, is because he says just a few verses later, drop down to verse 10, I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. Does Paul think that they're actually going to take the view of the circumcision party? Answer, verse 10, no. So they're contemplating it, and he's warning them, don't take that view. Stay away from that, or you will fall away from grace. He's telling them how terrible the situation is, and he's fighting for them and with them to say, stay in Christ. Hold on to grace. So the gospel is a victory that Christ has won, but we must fight not to lose this freedom of his grace. Heed the warning. Persevere with good fruit through our faith in the promises of God. This fighting includes holding on to our faith, and it includes holding on to that faith that produces good fruit. Let's look at verses 5 and 6 and see that point. 
For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. We're fighting by faith because faith produces in us love. The Spirit of God, as you put your faith in Jesus to say, okay, Jesus has won a victory for me to give me freedom from all these things that we've talked about in point number one. Freedom from slavery, freedom from death, freedom from fear, freedom, freedom, freedom. So I'm believing. I'm going to continue to believe by faith in that. As we lock our eyes on Christ, faith happens in our heart by the power of the Holy Spirit. That faith, we see in verse 6, produces love. It's not faith plus love. It's faith working through, love working through our faith and through the power of the Spirit. This is why we talk as Christians and say, no, it's God through me, Christ in me. It's not me. I didn't do that. That was God working in and through me because all I did was just trust by God, trust in God by faith. And God's Spirit started stirring in my heart acts of love. I started thinking about other people. Stop thinking about myself. I started thinking about God in a different and new way and the world in a different and new way. And I started loving people. It just happened. I I received instructions from Christian teachers and preachers and I read books. And all of a sudden I, I wanted to do it. It wasn't like someone was forcing me to do it. I wasn't feeling like I was enslaved, that I had to do it. But I just wanted to so, so terribly in my heart. This is what's being taught here. This is what we try and teach as a church that if you're a Christian then there will be good fruits of love. We should expect those. We should see those, that you will know a tree by its fruits. In the next section of this chapter, we're going to see what those fruits actually are. The fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And so that's what he's referring to here, kind of tipping his hand a bit to where he's about to go. So we fight for faith that produces love. Because in Christ Jesus, circumcision or uncircumcision, it doesn't mean anything. And I know that in verse 12, there is a a very like, whoa, that's a hard word, you know? Like, that's severe. I think I would argue that verse 6 and 5, or verse 5 for the 6 this is, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. I think that's probably just as severe in the first century, for a Jewish audience, for people that know, like, circumcision would have been everything, not just something. It would have been everything. It would have been your mark. It would have been your badge. It would have been your identity. It would have been how you know that you're a part of the true family of God. And so for Paul to say something like, this means nothing, I hope that when you hear this, you're like, wow. In its first century context, wow. That, my friends, flips the whole world upside down when he says this. This is breathtaking. It is more breathtaking than what he will say later. So put your eyes on Christ by faith and let the Spirit of God stir up in you love as you realize that your performance or lack of performance, your Bible reading or your lack of Bible reading, your abstaining from alcohol or your lack of abstaining from alcohol, your attendance to church every single week, every single time early, and always stay late to help clean up, versus coming up, never showing up, showing up late, 
Christmas and Easter. Do you see what I'm saying? Salvation is not dependent on circumcision, something I do with the flesh, or versus something I don't do. It means nothing. All that means is faith. Faith, faith. Faith alone. This is so clearly taught here. So the gospel is a victory. Christ has won by faith alone. And you cannot lose your salvation, so let's fight. Let's fight and hear the warning so we never lose our freedom. And we do that by fighting against false teachers. That's the next section, verses 7 through 12. He says, you were running well, meaning they got off to a good start. They were hearing the gospel. They were walking the walk that God had led them on to follow Christ. And then something happened. It says, who hindered you from obeying the truth? And I believe the truth here is the the truth of the gospel, that Christ alone is everything and that circumcision or uncircumcision counts for nothing. It's grace, not works. So who hindered you? And the word hindered here is actually who cut into your running. Who, Who like hindered your path and kind of cut in and became a barrier or a stumbling block to your running. And the reason I want to point that out is because I think it's, it's tied into verse 12. I think he's hinting what he's about to say. Who cut in to your obeying the truth? Well, anybody who cuts into the truth, let them be cut off. The play on words. If you cut into the gospel, then you need to be cut out of the church. So our fighting for this faith is to preserve that this community is a community that preserves the teaching of grace alone, through Christ alone, by faith alone, not by your works, so that all glory would be to God and not anyone else. And if you come up into our church and start saying, well, I don't think that's true, or I'm going to depend on my own effort, we're going to ask you to repent of that and stop telling other people about that, or we're going to ask you to leave. Not in a mean way. We want to be an inclusive community, that's what we talked about last week. But if somebody is being so dogmatic about their efforts, then they are being exclusive. And it's killing our inclusivity. Because now somebody's got to match up to your abilities and your standards and your performance. And that now narrows the circle of who can be really in. So we don't want that kind of thinking. Let's cast that out. That's what we talked about last week. You see that in chapter 4, don't you? Cast out the slave woman and her son. Who's the one who hindered? Whoever they are, they must be cast out and cut off. Because just a little leaven, verse says, a little bit of false teaching can start spreading through the whole church. So diligently fighting for not just the pastor's preaching, but the members' thinking and teaching and praying and how we talk to one another. If you start sniffing it, oh, That sounds like works righteousness. That sounds like legalism. Then it's your obligation to try and help that person see the truth. Don't fall away from grace, my friend. Embrace Jesus. Don't put your hope in your works. Friends, this is our calling as church members to be in one another's lives so that way even one little person in this church does not fall away from grace. I hope that you will see that you individually need to take responsibility of your calling in that regard. This is not just the elder's job. The elder's job is to hopefully rally us around God's word every Sunday, to counsel and help and shepherd, but so that you'd be equipped to do the work of the ministry and make the whole body of Christ mature. 
so that each one of us, like links on a chain, are strong and standing firm for the gospel. And there's not one weak link among us, that all of us would stand and die for this gospel. So as we see in this passage that fighting for this truth means that we need to be diligent amongst one another, and we need to fight for this freedom even when it leads to our own persecution. Look at verse 11. But if brothers, I still preach circumcision, then why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. And his point here is that he's preaching a gospel that says it's Christ and Christ alone, not Christ plus circumcision. So if he was preaching circumcision, then why would he be getting persecuted from people who are Jews and telling him that his gospel is not the one true teaching of the whole Bible, that he's leaving out the importance of circumcision. And so the offense of the cross is the scandalous nature of grace here. And so we want to affirm this scandalous grace and protect it and preserve it, even if it leads to our persecution. It's actually a mark that you'll know that you're actually believing the true gospel. Are you, are you getting persecuted for it? Are people telling you, no, no, it can't be that easy. It can't be that free. It can't be that liberating. That's too easy. Some of you might know about Harriet Tubman. It's kind of appropriate, I think, to think about her in light of freedom and freedom from slavery. I heard earlier this year that Harriet Tubman, because of how dangerous her rescue missions were, that she regularly carried around a pistol with her. So she was um, ready to fight, if you want to put it that way. But interestingly enough, who she wanted to fight against wasn't the people who owned slaves. It was the people within her own community. Harriet Tubman demanded such strict obedience from the fugitives that were in her group. So if you don't know, Harriet Tubman was this African-American slave, wom slave woman that escaped and then started stealing slaves out of uh, these different farms and plantations and getting people to now go under what was called the Underground Railroad and uh, lead them to their freedom. So it was about 70, 80 some different people I think that she helped rescue. And so Harriet Tubman is, is kind of like a, a Moses they, that she's been called. The, the Moses of her day that led people out of slavery and into freedom. And so if a slave returned to the master, they were afraid that they would then tell and snitch on the rest of the people. And then they'd all go back into slavery. And then they would be compromised. So Tubman would apparently hold a revolver to the head of him or her who was thinking about going back to the plantations and going back into slavery. I mean, imagine this picture. Holding a revolver to the head. No! Either you die or you stay free. And there's a sense to which you kind of get that sense in this passage, don't you? Like, he's talking very severe language here. He's talking very intense language. That's why verse 12 says what it does. That's why he's warning in the way he does in verses 2 through 6. So then later on, Harriet Tubman was asked, now would you actually have shot one of those refugees and apparently she said, yes, if he was so weak enough to give up our mission, then he'd be weak enough to betray us and tell everybody where we're at. And so I would not let one man go and kill 
and destroy the mission for all these other men. So thankfully she never had to shoot anybody, but apparently she did come close and one time said, boys get your guns ready and get ready to shoot this man. And apparently they would have done it in a minute, but he got in line and stayed the course. I think this is a good illustration for us and our church. That sometimes we need to use severe language if somebody is on the edge of the precipice of falling away from grace and be like, no, realize what this will mean. Step back from the ledge. This is serious business. So we've seen that the gospel's free for us, but it's costly for Christ. It's a victory that Christ has won, but it's a fight for us, a fight of faith so we don't lose this freedom. Lastly, look at verses 13 and 15 and see the great paradox of the way the gospel frees us from evil but enslaves us to love. Verses 13 through 15 say, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out. That you are not consumed by one another. Do you see the paradox in this passage? You were called to freedom. You were set free from slavery because of Christ, because of the freeness of the gospel and the victory that has been won. So then what? Be a servant. Be a slave. You ever noticed that one of the most common designations Paul gives of himself is a servant of Christ Jesus in his letters. A doulos, it's the word slave. And he calls us here in this passage to serve one another. Do you see that in verse 13? Use your freedom to serve. Isn't that interesting? You're finally set free and the first thing you should be thinking, how can I be a slave? In Romans chapter 6, the language is put this way. You were set free from your slavery of sin so that you could become a slave to righteousness. We're always going to be a slave. The problem is, is that we were unable to, in our slavery to sin, to actually serve God and love him. But now we've been set free from that slavery and now we can serve him and we can serve with righteousness and love. The Spirit of God can well up in us this love that we are talking about. And so the gospel sets us free so we can serve others in Christ. Again, back in the Civil War days, America's slaves were freed. But there's a story, and I don't know if it's true, but I read it in a book not too long ago about a northerner who went to one of the slave auctions. And he purchased one of the slave girls. And as they walked away from the auction, the man turned to the girl and told her, you're free. With amazement, she responded, you mean I'm free? I can go wherever I want? Yes. And I can say whatever I want? Yep, you're free. And I can be whoever I want? Yes. And I can go and do whatever I want? Yes. 
With a smile, he said, you are free. Go, do, speak, whatever you like. She looked at him intently and said, then I want to be with you. This, my friends, is exactly what happens in the gospel. Too many of us fear that if we get rid of the law and we get rid of legalism and the idea that, hey, we need to make people accountable here. And so therefore, I need to keep hammering them with the Ten Commandments and tell them, how are you doing with that? And let's just be a very law-focused community that if we don't do that, then people are just going to run rampant and they're just going to do whatever they want and they're going to sin and they're going to use their freedom to bite and devour and eat people, not literally, but you know, the way the passage refers to, by hurting one another. We're not to use our freedom in this way. We're to use our freedom and realize that the God who freed us the liberator Christ, how do you not hear all that Christ has done for you today and think, I want to serve him? That's a privilege. That's an honor. If there's anywhere I want to go, if there's anything I want to say, if there's anything I want to do, it's now I want to do it for you, the one who just freed me. I owe you everything. And this, my friends, is the heart of the gospel of how that turns from faith to love. This is how we can be a community of people that don't have to get all up in each other's faces with the law, but get in each other's faces with the grace of God and help us say, are you continuing to fight the fight of faith and believe that you're free from slavery? Freedom from God's law leads us to love God and love each other. So as one writer put it, some fear that grace-delivered, blood-bought, radical freedom will result in a loveless license for people to sin all they want. But redeeming unconditional love carries the power to compel our hearts to the loyalty to the one who bought us. This, my friends, is the paradox. You have been freed from your slavery of sin, but now we are enslaving ourselves to serve the one who freed us. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we want to thank you for Christ, for Christ being the means of our salvation, our liberator, our deliverer, our Moses that led us through the waters. We thank you for Christ in the way that he has purchased for us the full payment of our redemption. We thank you for Christ that he is so worthy of us to serve. He's so worthy of our love and our affection, our praise and our adoration. God, we thank you for this word that you have given to us, that we can now think hopefully more rightly and more accurately about what true freedom is, what true Christian freedom is. And that our hearts would be so changed, God, we pray, by the work of your Holy Spirit, that as we look upon Christ, that we wouldn't just want to do whatever our flesh wants to do, but we'd want to do whatever our new creation wants to do, which is to serve you and love you in untold number of ways. So help us now. Help us now to love you and honor you and love one another. Help us to not be so self-consumed in our worship, even as we close out this segment of worship. To not think about ourselves and think about what others around us are thinking about us. God, I pray that we would honor you as the one who delivered us and set us free. In Jesus' name, amen.